0: Well, I want to invite you to take your copy of Scripture now and turn to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one, and we are going to continue our series in Ephesians. And uh, last week we looked at verses three through six, and this week we're going to focus on verses seven through ten. But I'm going to begin reading for us in verse one and read through uh, to verse fourteen. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 976. Page 976. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's pray, Father. We are so grateful for your word, and Lord, even as we come to your word now, we wait upon you, and Lord, we wait upon you to work and move by your Spirit. And there are so many challenges and difficulties, Lord, and um, trials represented by those who are present here this morning so many needs, so many burdens, so many joys. Lord, we pray that as we look to Your Word now and as we wait upon You, that You would minister Your Word to our minds, our hearts, our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. And Lord, that You would do a good work for Your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, as we uh, began this series last week in Ephesians chapter 1, we noted that in these opening words that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Paul gets carried away. In chapter 1 verse 3, Paul begins by praising God for his salvation. He writes, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places.'" And then Paul begins to recount through the rest of these opening verses some of the blessings of God's salvation. And as he does so, as he begins to recollect or or remember some of these spiritual blessings, they begin to just tumble out of him one after another, after another, after another, seemingly without taking pause to breath, to breathe. And in so doing, as, as Paul begins to recount these blessings of salvation and rejoice in God's grace and in His mercy, Paul models for us, at least in part, what it looks like to enjoy the gospel. What we see here in this opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is Paul reveling in the good news of God's grace in Christ. Well, right away, something that we notice is that Paul's joy in the gospel is both doctrinal and trinitarian. Now you might say, well, those are big words. What does that mean? Doctrinal and trinitarian. Well, let me just give a moment to explain. Paul's joy in the gospel, first of all, is doctrinal. In other words, what I mean by that is we see here in this opening chapter that Paul's joy in the gospel is rooted in biblical doctrine. It's rooted in biblical truth. Some people will suggest that immersing ourselves in the Scriptures and growing in our knowledge of biblical doctrine will sour our relationship with God, it will sap our joy in Him. And we should acknowledge that that's possible if we pursue knowledge of the Scriptures for the wrong reasons. However, notice that that is not the case with the Apostle Paul. Paul. Instead, the more he knew about the great truths of God's salvation, the more Paul was humbled before God, and the more his heart swelled with joy. My friends, if you desire for your joy in God to increase, then let me encourage you that, like the Apostle Paul, apply yourself to growing in your knowledge of God's Word and the great truths of His salvation. So Paul's joy in the gospel is doctrinal, but it's also Paul's joy in the gospel is Trinitarian. Now what do I mean by that? Well, as Christians, we confess our belief in the doctrine of the Trinity. When we speak of the Trinity, we mean that we believe that God is one, and He is also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why do we believe that as Christians? Well, that that could be an entire sermon in and of itself, but it's because of passages like Ephesians 1. And there are many other passages that we find throughout the New Testament and also um, passages in the Old Testament that represent this truth as well. But what we see here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that Paul's praise is Trinitarian. You might have noticed it as we were reading through these 14 verses, the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We see in verses 3 through 6, which we considered last week, that Paul rejoices in God the Father's initiative. And we talked about the doctrines of election and predestination. Now, as we look at verses 7 through 10, this week, we will see that Paul rejoices in God the Son's work of redemption. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 11 through 14, and there we see that Paul rejoices in God the Spirit's application of salvation. So Paul's praise here in these verses is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all true Christian worship will eventually reveal itself to be Trinitarian worship. Therefore, for the sake of our joy this morning, we will give our attention to some gospel doctrines, gospel truths, as we praise the triune God of the Bible, Father Son, and Holy Spirit. As I mentioned before, last week we focused on the work of the Father, and this week we will focus on the work of the Son, in particular, His work of redemption. Now, I want us to look at Five aspects of the Son's work of redemption. If you're taking notes, I'm going to mention them quickly here, but then I'll review them as we're walking through the sermon so that you can capture all of them. So, five aspects of the Son's work of redemption. We'll consider, first of all, the definition of redemption. Secondly, the need for redemption. Third, the price of redemption. Fourth, the freedom of redemption. And fifth, the purpose of redemption. So first, the definition of redemption. Look there in verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now, we're not going to spend much time on this point, but I want to simply begin by defining the word redemption. In the original language, the word is apalutrosis. It means to buy back, to purchase, or to Ransom. It was a word that was used specifically in reference to the purchase or or liberation of a slave at a cost or a payment. So one way that we could define this word is that it is paying the required price or ransom to deliver a person from bondage. So this is simply stated the definition of redemption. It's to buy back. It's to purchase. It's to ransom. Secondly, The need for redemption. The need for redemption. So there we read again in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Now as we think about the need of redemption, one of the things we need to recognize is that redemption in the New Testament, so much of how we understand redemption in the New Testament goes back to our understanding of how God redeemed Israel in the Old Testament. In particular, how He redeemed them from Egyptian bondage and slavery. The event that occurred when God redeemed His people from Egyptian bondage and slavery is known as the Exodus. And the Exodus provides the framework for us to understand this biblical concept of redemption. So, for example, the Bible teaches us that we are, in our natural state, enslaved to sin we go back and we think about the Exodus and what happened in those events, we are reminded that Moses requested Pharaoh. This is what was happening. The people were in slavery. They were in bondage. And Moses requests of Pharaoh that they be let go so that they might go out and worship God as God had commanded them to do so. But Pharaoh refused. And so they were unable to worship God as he had commanded because they were enslaved to Pharaoh. And we know from the Scriptures that in our natural state, we are incapable of worshiping God as He is worthy to be worshiped and as He has commanded us to worship Him because we are enslaved and in bondage to our sin. Furthermore, the Scriptures teach us that we are enslaved to the law. And we recognize that in the Exodus, in an act of cruelty, Pharaoh declared that he would no longer provide straw for the bricks that the Hebrews were required to produce. However, even though they didn't have the straw that they needed to produce the bricks, and they were supposed to collect all the straw on their own, they were still required to produce the same quota of bricks. And when they failed to do so, the taskmasters would chastise them. And beat them for not meeting Pharaoh's impossible demands. The Hebrews knew that no matter how hard they worked, no matter how long they worked, they'd never be able to fulfill Pharaoh's demands. And my friends, this is in fact the fix that Satan has us in. If we desire to be free from the guilt and the power of sin, the law says to us, do more. Work harder. Put your back into it be more devoted, be more earnest, be more sincere, then you'll be delivered. You'll be delivered from the guilt and the penalty of sin. But the only problem is it's an impossible task. And when we fail, Satan accuses us, and he chastises us, and he beats us, and he whips us with a guilty conscience and leaves us frustrated and defeated. The Bible tells us that we're enslaved to sin, that we're enslaved to the law. The Bible also tells us that we're enslaved to death. And again, we see this illustrated in the events of the Exodus. Ultimately, the Hebrews' enslavement to Pharaoh resulted in death. And no doubt some of them died premature because of the hardships and injustices of slavery. But others faithfully carried out their responsibilities, their duties as slaves, but they never received the opportunity to be freed. Instead, they died as slaves. One generation after another, after another, after another, never knowing freedom, but only knowing slavery and death. And likewise, the Scriptures teach us that our enslavement leads to death. The wages of sin is death. That's the reason why we naturally fear death. It's one of the reasons why our society is so obsessed with exercise and dieting and doctors and medicine, which all of that can be wonderful things. But at one level, we recognize that we're all trying to extend our lives, right? We're all trying to live just a little bit longer. We're all trying to avoid death. And if we're successful in extending our lives we can still feel all along the way our bodies beginning to give way. Andy Rooney once said, quote, it's paradoxical that the idea of living a long life appeals to everyone, but the idea of getting old doesn't appeal to anyone. And that's the reality we find ourselves in, isn't it? This is humanity's great dilemma. Yes, we are wondrously created in the image of God. And yes, we are born into a world that is full of glory and full of splendor, and we should rejoice in those things. However, no matter how good looking or smart or wealthy or privileged our parents may be, we are all born into this world as sinners. We are sinners by nature, we are sinners by choice, and therefore, spiritually speaking, We are all born into this world as slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to the law, slaves to death. And much like the Hebrews who suffered under Egyptian bondage and slavery, we do not possess the ability, we don't possess the resources, we don't possess the wealth to purchase our freedom. We have nothing to offer Pharaoh. That he would say, you may go. We are in way over our heads. In fact, it's hard for us to imagine the magnitude of our debt. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's really a parable about redemption. And in this parable, Jesus uses the image of a debtor's prison to convey the nature of our predicament. Many of you know the parable. There's this king, and he decides that he's going to settle accounts with all of his servants. And so he comes to this one servant, and this servant owes 10,000 talents to the king. Folks doing kind of the modern equivalency in terms of money today say that that would amount to about $6 billion. As a result, the king is going to sell this man... And his entire family into slavery until they can pay off the debt. But the man begs for mercy. He begs the king that he would forgive his debt, and the king shows him pity and compassion and forgives him. Upon his release, this freedman meets another man who owes him, Jesus says, a hundred denarii, which modern equivalently would be about $12,000. So it's significant, it's not like it's nothing. But it's nothing compared to $6 billion. This man pleads for mercy. And the freed man, who the king had just let go, refuses him mercy. But instead, throws him in prison and demands that he pay the debt in full. The king gets word and he is furious. And he confronts the first man, who he's freed. And he rescinds his original forgiveness of the debt. Delivers him to the jailer until he pays the debt in full. Now, my friends, consider this. That man who is now thrown into prison has a $6 billion debt. If he is working at the average wage of an indentured servant, how long do you think it would take him to pay off that $6 billion debt? I did some math. If his work was valued at about $25,000 a year... And he was able to work for about 40 years, which is the average span someone might work in their lifetime. He would make about $800,000 per year, which would mean it would require over 1,000 lifetimes for him to pay off his debt. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the debt we owe for our sin is an incalculable debt. It's a debt we could never pay. Young people, some of you might be working your first job, part-time job, making minimum wage, maybe a little bit more. You know, recently in the news, it's been in the news that Elon Musk purchased Twitter for $44 billion. That's hard to imagine, isn't it, how much money that is. Young people, can you imagine how long it would take you to purchase Twitter on your part-time minimum wage job? That's what Jesus says it's like for a sinner to try to pay off the debt he owes. To pay off the ransom required for him to be delivered from the slavery of sin and the law and death. Here's the issue. How great is a man's debt if he sins repeatedly and flagrantly against a holy and infinite God? And that's what each of us have done. And that's our predicament. Joseph Aileen, old Puritan who wrote a book entitled A Sure Guide to Heaven, writes about the experience of a sinner who begins to realize the magnitude of his sin. And some of you at some point in your life experience this. He writes, "O Oh, my sins, my sins, behold, a troop comes, multitudes, multitudes. There is no number of their armies. Innumerable evils have encompassed me about. My iniquities have taken hold of me. They have set themselves against me. Oh, it were better to have all the regiments of hell come against me than to have my sins fall upon me, to the spoiling of my soul. Lord, how am I surrounded? How many are they that rise against me? And they are as mighty as they are many. The sands are many, but they are not great. The mountains are great, but they are not many. But woe is me, my sins are as many as the sand and as mighty as the mountains. Their weight is greater than their number. If, they, if it were better that the rocks and mountains should fall upon me than the crushing and unstoppable load of my own sins, end of quote. This is a description of our need of redemption It's a payment. It's a price that we could never pay. An incalculable debt that we could never cancel. But third, the price of our redemption. The price of redemption. Look there in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now notice here in our text that Paul actually defines redemption as the forgiveness of sins. He says in Him we have redemption, namely the forgiveness of our trespasses. And as a result of our sin, as we've noted just a few moments ago, we've accrued this enormous debt, this infinite debt, a debt we could never pay. So what is the price to cancel this incalculable infinite death? What must be paid? What is the price of our redemption? And Paul tells us, in Him we have redemption through His blood. That's the price. The blood which represents the death of the Lord Jesus. If we want to understand the price of redemption that's paid, we have to again go back to the Exodus and we see this illustrated for us in the Exodus. So the Hebrews were under all this bondage and slavery, and they cry out to the Lord for deliverance, and He hears their cry. And as a result of hearing their cry, God does all these miraculous works, right? He demonstrates His power over Egypt and Pharaoh through doing these miraculous deeds. You remember them. The plagues, the water is turned to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the death of all the livestock boils Come upon the people of Egypt, hail, locusts, darkness across the entire land. And as awe inspiring and as magnificent as all these plagues were, it was only by the shedding of blood that their redemption was finally secured. Do you remember the event? The last plague that God promised to come upon the Egyptians was the death of every firstborn male in Egypt. And so God is planning to come and He's going to take the life of every firstborn male in Egypt. And how is it that the Hebrews will escape when the judgment of God comes upon the Egyptians? God tells them to sacrifice a lamb. To take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorpost of their house. So that when God passes through the land of Egypt, He will pass over every home where blood is on the doorpost of each house. And He will visit the home where the blood is not present. And the firstborn child, the firstborn son in that family, will die. God, in fact, does so. And as God's judgment comes upon the land of Egypt, and as the firstborn male is killed in every Egyptian household, Egypt, uh, uh, Pharaoh responds in Exodus chapter 12, verse 31, and he says, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. In other words, they are set free. They're finally delivered from tyranny and bondage and slavery. And understand that the Hebrews were not set free because they were sinless and the Egyptians were guilty. When God came in judgment, the Hebrews were not spared because they were innocent. Rather, they were spared because God paid the penalty of their sin through the death and blood of another. The Lamb bore the punishment that they deserved so that they would be freed from the penalty of sin and death. You know, even today God's people celebrate God's deliverance of Egypt from or deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And we're amazed, aren't we? That God was willing to sacrifice the lives of thousands of lambs for the redemption of his people. In addition, God was willing to sacrifice the life of Pharaoh and the life of all the firstborn males of Egypt. God was willing to sacrifice the Egyptian army and the great wealth and stability of the nation of Egypt in order to liberate his people. It's an amazing thing. And this was not the only time that God was willing to pay high dollar in order to redeem and buy back his people, in order to liberate them and set them free. Isaiah, the prophet, says in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 3 and 4, For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba, which are other countries, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. God says, I will, I will pay with nations, with armies, with the wealth of the peoples in order to redeem you and to save you. But oh, my friends, who would have dreamed that he would have paid with the blood of his own son? And yet, that is exactly what he did. You see it there at the end of verse 6. Verse 6 concludes with the words, He has blessed us in the Beloved. And who is the Beloved? It is the Son of God's love. It is the One whom the Father loves. He goes on to say in verse 7, In Him that is in the Son of His love we have redemption. And how? Through His blood. Peter speaks of the preciousness of the blood of the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, knowing that you were ransomed, you were redeemed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We think about the blood of lambs and goats. We think about the blood even of Pharaoh and the firstborn sons in Egypt. We think about the sacrificing of nations and the wealth of nations in order to redeem the people of God. But none of it compares to the blood and the life of God's beloved Son. We can never fathom how precious it is. And that's why Paul goes on to write in verses 7 and 8, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Here it is, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You know, we oftentimes determine the wealth of a man by taking note of how much he is willing to spend for those things that are most dear to him. How much does he spend on his house? How much did he pay for his car? How much was he willing to invest in his children's education? Because whether a man is rich or poor, a man will usually do his best to give his all, to spend what he can on those things that are most dear to him. And my friends, what does it tell us about the wealth of God's grace that He paid for the redemption of His people with the blood of His own Son? Paul tells us that it it reveals to us that God is extravagant in His grace. Rich in His grace. Lavish in His grace. Wealthy beyond what we could imagine. And it's difficult for us to comprehend. Because in our grace towards one another, we are often so limited and meager. We often fail to extend grace to one another as we ought. And it's one of the reasons why Paul here is so awestruck, so overwhelmed, so overcome by the grace and the mercy of God. In fact, this becomes a theme in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So later on in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Or in verse 7 of that same chapter, so that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Or in chapter 3, verse 8, to Him, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the price that the Lord was willing to pay for our redemption the blood of His own Son, and it speaks to that He was willing to give the blood of His own Son, speaks to the wealth, the riches, the extravagance, the lavishness of His own grace and mercy towards us. Fourth, the freedom of redemption. The freedom of redemption. Look there in verses 7. Uh, verse 7. We read, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He, verse 8, lavished upon us. So when we spoke about the need of redemption, we saw that in our natural state we are enslaved to sin, we are enslaved to the law, and we are enslaved to death. But by the blood of the Lord Jesus... God the Father purchased our freedom from sin, law, and death. So, so let's start with the law. I'll just, there's other verses I could refer to, but just one, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the condemnation that the law, the curse that the law brings upon us, Christ says, "No, I will take that curse. I will take that penalty on the cross and bears the curse of the law in our place so that we might be redeemed and set free from enslavement to the law. Or freedom from death." We were enslaved to death, but in Hebrews chapter 9, which we read this morning, verse 12, we read that Christ entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, eternal life for all those who would trust in Him. And so, by the blood of the Son, we have been redeemed from the law, we have been redeemed from death. But in particular, Paul focuses on the fact that we have been redeemed from our bondage to sin, right? That's how he defines redemption here in these verses. In verse 7, he defines redemption as the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this is one of the great gospel promises and blessings, And so let's spend just a little bit more time on this point. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. But you have burdened me with your sins. This is the Lord speaking to His people. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember your sins no more. Or Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Or the Apostle Peter preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or in Acts chapter 3 verse 19 we hear the call of the gospel again. Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Or Acts chapter 10 verse 43. To him, that is Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Or Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is through Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This, my friends, is the great promise, the great blessing of the gospel. The forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of all our trespasses, the incalculable, infinite debt of our sin forever canceled, paid in full. Tomorrow, as we remember and celebrate, not Halloween, although it's okay to do some of that, but the Protestant Reformation, this is why the Protestant Reformation was so important, right? It was so important because in the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers were declaring that this and this alone is the price of our redemption, Christ and His shed blood. And what will you add to that great work of redemption? Nothing. Do not insult the beloved Son of God by seeking to add anything that you can do to that perfect work of redemption. Rather, receive it freely as a gift of grace. And as Paul does here, revel in God's infinite mercy. Christ shed his blood so that we might be freed. Freed from sin, freed from the law, freed from death. Fifth and finally, the purpose of redemption. And this is found in verses 8 through 10, the purpose of redemption. Let me begin in verse 7 because, so that it will flow and make sense. In verse 7 we read, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Verse 8, Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So just to summarize what Paul says here in these verses, verses 8 through 10, is that God lavished His grace on us, making known to us the mystery of His will so that, and here's the purpose, He might unite all things... In Christ. Now let's think about this for a moment. First of all, you notice that word there, mystery. What is the mystery that God has made known to us in all wisdom and insight? Well, oftentimes when we think of a mystery, we think of um, a mystery novel, you know, maybe. Or we, we think of like a secret, a puzzle, a riddle that has to be figured out. Something that's inexplicable. But when Paul speaks of the mystery of God in the New Testament, he is speaking of something that was previously unknown, but is now revealed. Something that was previously unknown, but has now been revealed. So, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes, "...the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." And specifically, the mystery of the gospel that Paul is speaking of here is the reality that Gentiles are members of the people of God by grace through faith in Jesus. So not just Jews, but now Gentiles are included in the people of God through faith in Jesus. In fact, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, elaborates on this idea extensively. And we don't have time to go through it all, but in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul explains what this mystery is. So if you just, you might flip over a page or two, drop down into Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, and Paul tells us explicitly what this mystery is. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you see, prior to the coming of Jesus, Gentiles entered into the people of God by becoming Jews, essentially. They had to be circumcised, they followed the law of Moses, they were required to observe the Jewish religious calendar, and so forth. And then Christianity began, and when Christianity began, it was largely a Jewish religion. Jesus, of course, himself was a Jew. His disciples were Jews. The book that they worked from and trusted in was the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. It was Jewish. And there was this tremendous hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. But what Paul is saying here, what he's declaring, is that the work of the Lord Jesus, His death and resurrection changed everything. So now through faith in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are equally members of the people of God. And in stating this mystery, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that he has been, not only has this mystery been revealed to him, but in this mystery being revealed to him, now he bears a certain responsibility. He bears a stewardship to make this mystery known, to declare this reality, that in Christ God is saving a people for himself from all peoples, from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. So look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And this stewardship is the stewardship of the mystery that has been revealed. And now Paul has this responsibility to declare this mystery that Christ has come to save all peoples. Now, of course, we are not the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul played a unique role in salvation history and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But having said that, there is a correlating principle here. We also, by the grace and the mercy of God, have received through the Apostle Paul and the writings of the New Testament and so forth, we have received this revelation, this knowledge of the gospel. And this knowledge, like it did for the Apostle Paul, implies responsibility. We have a responsibility to be good stewards of this mystery that has been entrusted to us, that Christ has come to redeem all people. And so in the first century, as the Apostle Paul had received this mystery and he had received this stewardship from the Lord, he proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles across largely the Mediterranean world. And then as the Apostle Paul hands this stewardship over, to the churches and the Christians of his own day, and then they hand it over to another generation, and another generation it passes down, one from another. So still today, the gospel continues to cross ethnic and cultural barriers all around the world as the church continues to grow, not only in number, but also in diversity. In fact, we are told that by 2050, 72% of all Christians will live... In Africa, Asia, and Latin America. In other words, the church in the West will be a minority. And God in His grace and mercy continues to give us here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, our little church in Augusta, Georgia, opportunities to bear witness to this mystery, to be faithful stewards of this testimony of the gospel. As a pastor, I'm privileged and given a unique look, kind of, at some of the things that God is doing through our church body. And I'll just say that, especially in the last year or two, I've been so encouraged by the ways that God is giving us opportunities to share the gospel, not only in our immediate neighborhood and area, but also even to the ends of the earth. And I was thinking about this and just trying to give you a how I could give you a sense of this, I I thought, I just want to share with you a snapshot of some of the ways I've seen this over the last couple of weeks. So, not this last Wednesday, but the Wednesday prior, so Wednesday a week ago, uh, Andy Sanders, who we had up here just a few moments ago, he and his wife, and we prayed for them, Andy and I had lunch together. Andy, of course, is one of, our mission, uh, one of our members, and we discussed his missions work in Serbia and their plans to go on this trip this week. That night, I came to church, and I'm in the discipleship class with Jesse. And then after the class, uh, I was outside on the sidewalk, saw Kyle Hubbard, and had a brief conversation with Kyle. And we began to talk about his, family pre- his family's preparations to head to the mission field in the coming months. And we talked about getting lunch soon so that we can discuss further what's coming for them. Last Sunday, preached on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and then went out to the grounds out across the street where we had lunch, and that was a great time. And as I was there, I met a pastor from South America. He's actually the father of one of our members, Samuel Lockhart. And this pastor from South America has been listening to sermons here at Crawford Avenue for some time and has been greatly helped by those sermons. And he requested a copy of my sermon notes from last week because he wanted to review them. Then after the service, we came back in here. We had our members meeting. We presented our budget, which... One of the highlights of presenting the budget for me was we presented our missions budget and talked about all the things that the Lord is doing through our church as it relates to missions. And among other things that we discussed was the possibility of beginning to support a young couple from a sister church of ours who is going to be going to China, and their focus will be to plant churches among the unreached peoples in China. And our elders are scheduled to meet with that couple this Thursday night and have dinner with them and talk to them more about their work. Then Monday, so that was Sunday, then Monday I met with another young woman from our congregation and we discussed plans for her to, she's a member of our church, to return to Asia where she will continue to do gospel work there. She's a full-time missionary in Asia. Then this last Wednesday, Dr. Peter Law, who's a ministry partner actually with Andy Sanders, and he recently returned to the States from works that he's been doing overseas. And he texted me because we're making final arrangements for him to be here on November 20th where he'll be preaching here at Crawford. And he's invited me to join him next year for a week or two in Nepal to assist in training local pastors in Nepal. Then Thursday, the next day, I ate lunch with a young man who is from Augusta and is leaving soon to return to Japan and plant churches in Japan, and he attended our Churches by the Book conference a couple weeks ago when we were talking about expository preaching and was greatly helped and encouraged by that, and he'll be using some of those things as he returns to Japan. Then this morning, of course, Andy taught our cohort class on the Protestant Reformation and World Missions. My friends, this was just the last couple of weeks. And it's not always that full in terms of missions activity, you know, and in terms of me being able to engage people on those things. This is just a little bit of a snapshot of some of the things that the Lord is doing in our church body as it relates to this mystery of the gospel that we've been entrusted with and, and, and this stewardship that we've been given to proclaim it to the peoples of the earth. Listen, my friends, God is redeeming a people for Himself. He is redeeming a people for Himself from all the peoples of the world. And He is working in and through our local body in part To do that work. And we should praise Him. But there's more. Notice in verse 10, Paul goes on to say, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is God's ultimate plan. The mystery is that Jews and Gentiles would be united in Christ, right? But the larger vision, the larger purpose of Christ's redemption is cosmic restoration. We live in a world that is marked by conflict, right? There's conflict between people. We've been talking about that. Jews and Gentiles. Paul unpacks it further in Ephesians chapter 2. But it's not just between Jews and Gentiles. You can't go anywhere in the world without finding one group of people pitting themselves against another group of people because of ethnic or cultural differences or whatever it might be and attacking and smearing and dividing. Our world is marked by conflict because of sin. And there's conflict in the spiritual realm as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul goes on to say, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul is saying there's a conflict between God and His people and Satan and his demons. And these, this conflict is constantly taking place in the world. But then there's conflict in the physical world as well because of sin. Paul mentions here in verse 10 heaven and earth. And it does seem like even though this world that God has created is so beautiful, now that sin has entered into the world, it seems at times that heaven and earth are at war against one another. You think about a fire, a forest fire that erupts and the smoke goes up into the sky and dirties and pollutes the environment for miles to come. Or, if you believe this sort of thing, we are told that cows, when they pass gas, emit methane into the atmosphere, which negatively affects the environment and contributes to global warming and so forth. This is the earth, in some ways, battling against the sky, we might say. Or the sky battling against the earth. There's snowstorms and floods and hurricanes that can wreak havoc, right? We just recently witnessed Hurricane Ian and the devastation that it brought to Florida. And the word that Paul uses here to speak about the restoration that God is going to bring, the word unite there is actually a really long word in Greek. It's the word ana kefaleao." It means to sum up or to bring together. And the prefix ana there means again. So there seems to be this idea that Paul is getting at here is that he's going to sum up again. He's going to bring together again. In other words, there was a time when everything was one in Jesus. There was one humanity. There was one Lord. There was one harmonious creation. But then sin brought division. Division between people, ethnic and cultural groups, and so forth. Division in the spiritual realm between God and Satan and angels and demons. Division in the physical world between heaven and earth. But by the precious blood of Jesus. Understand this, my friends. God not only purchased our souls. God redeemed. He bought back. He purchased all of creation. And by the blood of Jesus, He will once again unite it and restore it and bring it together so that all things are once again one in Christ. This is the scope of Christ's redemption. He is making and He will make all things new. How precious is His blood that through that blood, not only will He redeem our souls, but He will redeem and restore all of creation. In closing, I cannot speak of Christ's redemption without ensuring that each of us understand how we might experience that redemption. And so, my friends, if you are wondering this morning, how might I receive this redemption How might experience Christ's redemption? Well, the answer is in the text. And I made this point last week, and I'll make this point probably again next week because Paul makes it over and over and over again in our text. If you want to experience Christ's redemption, if you want to experience God's great salvation, you must be found in Christ. In verse 3, he tells us that we are blessed in Christ. In verse 4, God chose us in Christ. In verse 5, He predestined us for adoption through Christ Jesus. In verse 6, we are blessed in the beloved. That is the beloved Son of God. In verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through His blood. In verse 9, He set forth His purpose in Christ. In verse 10, we, He will unite all things in Him that is in Christ. If you want to experience God's great redemption you must be found in Christ and how can you do that by turning from your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus confessing and acknowledging to him that you are a sinner both by nature and by choice and as a result you are enslaved to sin and you must be saved and delivered from that sin and that the only one that can save you and deliver you is the Lord Jesus himself Confess to Him that you trust in Christ and His work of redemption to save you. And He will redeem you. He will save you. He will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. God, I pray now that You would take Your Word and apply it to each of our hearts. We praise You for the precious redemption that You have won for us in Christ. May our hearts, like Paul's, be full of rejoicing. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.